Thousands of Wisconsinites put their lives on the line during the Vietnam War. And so we're shooting like crazy. I mean, that jungle was lit up. Fighting against fierce and devious enemy forces. The Viet Cong um, truly were terrorists. In a mysterious and unforgiving landscape, their sacrifice not appreciated during an unpopular war, which changed many of them forever. I've often asked myself, why, why, why did I survive? Welcome to Medal and Honor Vietnam. I'm Mark Cannon in front of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial here on Milwaukee's lakefront. For the next 30 minutes, we will hear the stories of Wisconsin veterans who served in various capacities during the conflict in Southeast Asia. Medal and Honor is part of the War Memorial Center's Veteran Story Project, a video oral history of our state's vets who participated in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The War Memorial celebrates its 60th anniversary in 2017. We'll have more on the WMC's storied history later in the program. Some members of Wisconsin's military were in Vietnam even before America became formally involved in combat. Mike Greeby with the 81st Airborne reported for duty in November of 1964 as an advisor to a Vietnamese battalion. Mike says that even then, he could tell this would be an uphill battle. The Vietnamese were, were losing the battle for the people. Uh, the Viet Cong um, truly were terrorists. Uh, they systematically killed off most of the civilian leaders, uh, village and, and uh, provincial chiefs. Um, I saw the aftermath of, of several of those murders. Usually they would uh, disembowel the uh, village leader and just leave him out in the, in the village square or a market for the civilians to see. So we were losing the battle for the people. And the Viet Cong controlled the countryside at night. Uh, that's when they did all their moving. Um, I know we would send out some ambushes uh, at night, but uh, we, we did not control the countryside at all. We were involved in close combat. Uh, I was never wounded. I was shot at, but I would, was never wounded. And um, we had uh, three or four uh, situations where uh, many of our soldiers were killed or wounded. I was frightened, um, um, less so the longer I was in the country. I think you become a bit uh, immune uh, to that after a while. Uh, your senses get dulled. But um, sure, it's a, it's a frightening experience. Regular U.S. ground forces entered the fighting early in 1965. George Banda was a U.S. Army medic who lost his best friend, Tommy Turan, during one horrific battle. That same day, or same morning that we lost Tommy, I was wounded, uh, I got shot, uh, grazed left side of my head, 
had grazed it on, you know, it severed an artery, but I was smart enough at being a medic, you know, knew how to stop the, uh, the bleeding. I had run out of trauma dressings and bandages because there was so many wounded that morning. But what I, I was smart enough to, I had my t-shirt and I just ripped a piece of my t-shirt and put it into a little ball and I pushed it into the hole and stopped the bleeding. And then I took another long strip and then just tied a band and real tight to keep the blood from squirting out because I lost a lot of blood. I didn't realize how much blood I lost. But I, yeah, I was uh, transferred to, uh, uh, it was interesting because uh, the, the hospitals were so full that day, there was just so much going on, not only with us, but with other um, uh, fire bases around in other areas around Vietnam. They were taking a lot of wounded, American wounded. So they sent me to an Army Marine hospital, and that's where I recovered. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks in uh, recovery uh, at, uh, at a Marine in Da Nang. Marine Navy Hospital there, and they treated me pretty well. And uh, when you got hit and you did your little yeah, did you then keep treating other? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I felt okay. I mean, I wasn't passing out. I, I, I did, later on, as I, you know, as the hours went by, you know, then I started getting weaker and weaker. But I kept treating. I mean, these are these are the people I know. These are my buddies, and I wasn't gonna let uh, let that stop me. William Sims also performed heroically after he was wounded by a grenade, saving his lieutenant's life after his unit walked into an ambush. The guy throws a grenade, and the grenade bounces, and I see it coming, and I turn my head to the side because I know I say if it, if it bounces or something like that, it's going to bounce past me. No, it bounces and it bounces close to my leg, this leg here, and it blows up. When it blows up, my leg—I feel my leg lift up, right? And I said, oh, no, I don't want to even look at this, you know. But I look, and my leg is there, still there. Then I see a little trickle of blood coming out of here. Well, if, it, if I hadn't had my, my boot on real tight, it, it could have done some serious damage. And then you went on and kept fighting, knowing after well, you were wounded, right? Oh, yeah, you got to. The guy, uh, one of the VC had seen me. Uh, this was before uh, uh, anything happened. My, my weapon had jammed. And the guys next to me weapon had jammed. And I said, hey, we got to get out of here. And I'm looking around. You know, I'm crouched down. I'm looking around. And I see him laying on the ground, the lieutenant. So I know that I ain't got no weapon, okay? And the nearest weapon is him, really, <laughs> okay? So I go and grab him, pulls him about 15 or 20 yards to a foxhole. One of the machine gunners had gotten hit. So when I was putting the uh, lieutenant into a foxhole and loading his weapon for him to protect himself, I saw this happening, okay? The guy had gotten raked on the side and killed him instantly, and he fell over the machine gun. So I runs to the machine gun after I put the lieutenant in there, and I, I put, push his body off. And so now he done bled into the chamber. So I got to clean that chamber out, okay, before it's going to fire. So I'm wiping with my elbow and anything I got. Pick up the machine gun and clear it. Then I go to the left flank. Uh, as I said, uh, I hold that position until I was relieved.
One of the biggest problems for U.S. forces was fighting an enemy that often wore no official uniform. Fernando Rodriguez discovered danger could be sudden and unexpected. We saw two people coming in on our location, and we had to wave them in, and they had their hands up, so they were, they were, um, they were surrendering. So of course we had to talk them in and walk them in, and when we got down, we were, we, you know, we secured them, and then we started to, to, um, to search them. Uh, little things give, give, give them away to you as the one that's doing the searches that they may or may not be friendly. In this case, I, uh, one of the guys had a Zippo lighter and it had the name of a Marine on there. So we knew most likely he didn't, the Marine didn't give it to him. Uh, so we, we kind of treated him as not friendly. And when I was searching the other one, uh, my partner, of course, was, was watching me in the back here. And I had my rifle in my left hand and I kind of bend over with my right hand to do searching and at the hand up here, and all of a sudden I just felt my rifle drop from my hand. And they say that your life spins in front of your, you know, goes by in seconds. And it seemed like everything was real slow motion until I hit the ground and it came back real fast. And the first thing I said was my rifle. A Marine without his rifle is nothing. So. I was trying to get my rifle, but I couldn't move my arm. And then I heard some shots, and my partner shot one of the prisoners, and then the other one laid back down because he was going for my rifle. That's what he told me afterwards. Um, it's like something that happens in, in 30 seconds that just stays with you forever. And I always think that the bullet that went through me is the one that hit the lady that was sitting there watching this going on, and it hit her in the head. When I fell, she fell on top of me. And I have my, my arm that won't move with her on top of it, which makes it even harder, and I have her brains falling on me. And all I could do with my right hand was to try to take him out and just try to get him away. But I guess as I was doing that, I was putting like more blood all over me. And I was finally able to push her off to the side. And um, I tied my own tourniquet. We were taught this in boot camp. We say, if it's, if it's just coming out, don't worry about the tourniquet. Just put pressure on it. If it's squirting out, the tourniquet. So we put, I remember I took my web belt out. I still carry it and tied it around me and until the, the corpsman got to me and was able to do what he could there and I was medevaced out in a helicopter. Many Wisconsin television viewers know the name John Milan, who became a very popular TV weatherman in Milwaukee. But what many of John's viewers might not have realized is that John was involved in serious combat in Vietnam as a member of an armored unit. I was sent to uh, uh, 11th Armored Cav Regiment and I got assigned to drive an armored personnel carrier with the headquarters unit. 
There were a couple of bad battles, uh, but my worst was in November, I think it was 1969. It's a blur. We went, we were getting ready to go close to Cambodia. And we went past the further, furthest northernmost base. After you get past that base camp, it's tough. There's a lot of North Viet NVA, North Vietnamese Army, uh, Viet Cong, um, and you're right by the Cambodian border where the Ho Chi Minh Trail was. And it's active, it's active, active, active. So we pull up and we're about maybe 10 miles from the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the border of Cambodia. And we pull up and we're, so we're establish a base camp here. And we did, just like we normally do, and put out the claymores and you know everything. And the first night, we didn't know it, but we set up kind of right over an underground Viet Cong base camp. So they were like underground below us where we set up. And all of a sudden, about two in the morning, they start coming at us. And they came out as, as a wave of, of troops, you know. And a couple of guys came out of the ground, they're throwing the satchels, which are the bombs. They're, they're what they call the satchel charges, you know, which is a homemade kind of a bomb. And so we had people inside the perimeter and a bunch of people outside the perimeter, enemy, and so we're shooting like crazy. I mean, that jungle was lit up. So we had many tanks blown up, uh, people killed, many injured, including myself. But my injury was, you know, not that bad. Just a shrapnel, piece of shrapnel through the knee. Twenty seventeen marks the sixtieth anniversary of the War Memorial Center. In the early nineteen fifties, several community groups saw the need for a fitting memorial to honor the soldiers killed in World War II. The community pooled its resources in a truly remarkable fundraising campaign, which resulted in construction starting in nineteen fifty five and the War Memorial being dedicated on Veterans Day nineteen fifty seven. A group of people got together and thought, let's, let's not have a statue, let's not do a flagpole, let's do a living, breathing memorial. It was painstaking. They had to find a place to do it. They had to raise a lot of money. It took a couple few years, but they raised the money. They raised $2.7 million. Now, $2.7 million came from 70,000 individuals and businesses in the Milwaukee area. It was on marquees at theaters. It was on sides of buses. So the community got behind this. This is, a, this is the community's War Memorial Center. The War Memorial Center is currently working on plans for major renovations to continue its mission of serving veterans of all wars. To learn more about the War Memorial's programs, services, and future plans, visit warmemorialcenter.org. Many who served in Vietnam were not welcomed home as heroes. In fact, there were several who encountered hostile receptions when they returned to the States. Lupe Renteria recalls one such incident at a party in Chicago. I'm in this kitchen, you know, these north side flats, you know, so I'm in the kitchen and these two young guys come in. Young guys are probably 18, you know, I'm 20. And um, they say, hey, man, where do you work? I said, I don't. They said, where do you go to school? I said, I don't. They said, oh, take off. Said, Talk to me. So another guy comes in, and he's in a coat and tie, so I'm saying he's a little older than 20, maybe 22 or something. He's in a coat and tie, and he said, hey, man, where do you work? 
and uh, oh, what do you go to school? And I said, I don't. And I said, I deal in a service and I wear a uniform. And he said, oh, how do you like the Army? And I said, I'm in the Marine Corps. He goes, oh, Marine Corps. He starts doing this. To this day, I have no idea what look I gave this guy, but he just went, I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, he's like, I'm sorry, man. I said, no, it's okay. So I just got back from Vietnam on Thursday. So anyway, he introduces me, and she's very pretty and very nice, and oh, nice to meet you. And then he says, Lupe just got back from Vietnam. And she said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. She said, did you ever kill anybody? And I said, yeah. And she said, you sadistic bastard. And as big as I can make my finger, as loud as I could scream. And um, I'm sliding the family stones playing in the background, and my buddies are in there. And I just screamed. I said, the first person I killed is a bitch about your age, you know. And the place goes silent. My buddies come up. So let's get out of here. And that was, I was home for 20-some days, and that was day three. And spent the rest of the time denying it, denying being over it. The Vietnam War ended in 1975, but for a lot of vets, the war continues today as they deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. I've seen guys, you know, actually flying through the air once a rocket hit. And uh, were you ever hit? No. I was one of the lucky ones. No, I was I was never hit. But just seeing your your friends dying, and I've I've heard. It said that folks don't make friends. And that's, after a while being there, you come to find out why. And the grief that come from post-traumatic stress, it just causes you to just get off by yourself. Oh, I could tell you some some stories about folks asking questions why is he always by himself why is he always sitting in the dark the reason i prefer the dark was because there was safety in the dark you can't be seen during the daylight hours You're exposed, but the nights, you have a chance. And I've often asked myself, why, why, why did I survive? Why couldn't I die over there to come back to die a slow death of memories, not being able to socialize like regular people. Don't ever let anyone say war is not hell because they'd be lying to you. War is hell. 
you can never regain what you've lost. John Keppen also dealt with guilt after his Vietnam experience. One incident in particular would forever change John's outlook on life. We were at Kuchi, which was the main base of the, of the 25th, and we pulled berm duty. And what happens there is kids would sneak in the wire and steal the Claymore mines, and they would sell them to the VC. And they were doing it to earn money. At that time, we kind of knew it, but we didn't really know it. And so on guard duty, you would fire warning shots over their head. That was the whole thing. You'd try tear gas, you'd try this and fire warning shots. And I remember one time, there's these kids just wouldn't quit. And so one time I raised my weapon and I fired a shot. And I know I was damn close because the kids stopped. All of them stopped. And they all left that fence. And at that moment, I thought, like, what kind of person have I become to shoot kids? And so I carry that, and that was in December. And I always feel that's one of the reasons I don't have children, and I never got married, and I don't have kids. Because I felt there was a well of anger that could be tapped at any time, and I just didn't want to get into that. While John Keppa decided not to have children, Janice Dalkey is a parent. She's a gold star mother. Her son Randy was killed in Vietnam. Because he enlisted when he was only 17 years old, Janice had to sign for him so that Randy could enter the military. And she faced blame for Randy's death at his funeral. I was um, packing a present, a package for Randy for his birthday. And I looked out the window and saw the two servicemen coming up the driveway. See, I was married twice, and the first husband's third wife came up to the casket and said, I killed him. So, you know, if I had my faculties about me, I was slugger. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have support. I loved him very much. And I miss him. I miss his laughter. I think that's why I joined the Gold Star Mothers, because you're able to talk to people, to women that uh, are going through the same thing. And I, I think that was more comfort to me, to be able to uh, talk to someone that you get the crazy comments, so you're grieving too much, or get over it. You get crazy statements like that. You know, what are you gonna say? And it's uh, people that should have understood you. <laughs> I think that's what hurts more than anything. Ruby Shuing was a U.S. Army nurse in Vietnam where she cared for countless wounded soldiers. 
The Army had a major impact on Ruby's life. She met Gary, a major in the Army Corps of Engineers, the man who would become her husband. And it all happened pretty quickly. We got married during the Tet Offensive. Really? Mm-hmm. Who yeah. married you, like a chaplain? Or? Oh, yeah, I had, I had taken, I was a convert to the Catholicism, and I stay in touch with the chaplain that married us. He came from the battlefields to our wedding in his fatigues and said a few words, blessed us, and then he left. But the priest that married us was a, an Air Force chaplain. We got married, and then from the reception, we got on a, um, a plane with a Vietnamese general that was flying to Saigon, and we flew right after the wedding, right to Saigon. We had to wait a couple of days because they were fighting in the streets in, um, in Tansanut, and so, and then we got out, and yes, we were able to take a 41-day honeymoon. I got my dress in Singapore. The girls, the uh, bridesmaids, had their, got their dresses from the Sears catalog, and uh, so we were, yeah, we had everything. And they carried our reception on for a month after we left. People didn't even know who we were anymore, and they were still having a drink on us. So, so uh, well, that's um, a happy ending, and that, that that worked out that well. Thank you for watching Metal and Honor Vietnam. This program is part of the War Memorial Center's Veteran Story Project, an oral video history of Wisconsin veterans from all wars. Our project is ongoing. If you're a veteran or know someone who is, we would love to record your, his, or her story. For more information on how you can get involved in the project, visit warmemorialcenter.org.